Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, a year on the North Sea coast with Daughter Noz and her new book, A Line in the World. Daughter Noz studied literature at the University of Aarhus. She is one of the most original voices in contemporary Danish literature. Her short stories have appeared in numerous international publications, including the Boston Review and Harper's, and she is the first Danish writer ever to have a short story published in The New Yorker. She has published several works of fiction, including the novella Minna Needs Rehearsal Space and the novel Mirror Shoulder Signal, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker International Prize, and a collection of stories, Karate Chop, all published by Pushkin Press. Karate Chop won the prestigious P.O. Enquist Literary Prize in 2014. And today we're going to talk about Daughter's new book, which is a non-fiction, A Line in the World, a year on the North Sea coast. Daughter, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. So tell us, first of all, how this book came about. It was actually quite strange because I was, um, I was at a residency trying to write a novel. I was contacted by someone who said, you're going to write about the West Coast, aren't you? For I'm going to take some photos and you will, you will write the text. And I said, no, I will not. And he asked again, and I said, no, I'm, I'm writing a novel. And uh, so I don't have time for that kind of project. But then I took a couple of weeks and it started growing on me because I live on the North Sea coast. And um, I had very busy years before I was asked about this. I was constantly launching my book somewhere. It was a very noisy life. And suddenly I thought, oh, it would be so wonderful to take my car and, and my notepad and uh, my curiosity for the landscape and my love for the landscape and just drive out into the wilderness or under little villages and whatever I may come across uh, on the coastline that I live on and see uh, where it takes me. So I did that and I uh, I told um, the foundation who had asked me to uh, write this and the photographer who also participated in the Danish version of the book that I was going to spend one year doing that. And not a moment more because I had to get back to the novel. So um, I embarked on this journey and um, I wrote a chapter for each place that I had investigated and I spent one year doing it. And the interesting thing about that was that I thought I was writing essays 
with different topics and moving around. But what happened with writing it in one year and going to a place, writing about it, going to another place or another theme, writing about it, in that time lapse meant that when I was done with the book and I read it from one end to the other in one sitting, I just went, oh, it's a little bit like a novel <laughs> because I traveled through it. So it was a quite wonderful work process. And it was such a blessing to write in that kind of way where you go into a landscape or a theme, you, um, you just open yourself to it and it, you see where it takes you. And you write about it. It was um, it was quite joyful writing this book. So tell us what the line is then, because you you talk about this line. Obviously, the book is subtitled "The North Sea Coast," so we know where you're going to be traveling. But you're very specific about the concept of of a line down the coast. And of course, it it points back at the coastline. But um, this line in particular, if you look at its uh, geography, is a very fragile line. It's made of sand and it's uh, constantly altered and changed by the North Sea. So it's a, it's a line that sort of quivers and moves in the world. And uh, that is a very existential image, right? That is how life treats us as well. And the line is also, of course, writing when it comes to to uh, my craft. But um, you could also say it's a lifeline, right? But if you look at it in a geographical sense, and that was the purpose of this in the beginning, it's the very line where the ocean meets the land. It's that beach and the sea mountains and the water that meets sand and sand drift and storms and that whole experience in nature where very rough waters meets a body of land. And that is sort of a line where great energies exchange and where existence is harsh and bleak and uh, confrontational and where life is hard to live, but where life is also rich to live. And um, I wanted to try and portray that edge. You can either see it's the end of the world because that's where we're we stand. When we look over the water, you go, "Oh, that is the end of the world." You know, in ancient time, they thought they would drop over the edge, right? <laughs> but I always see standing on the beach, looking over the water as that is where the world begins, because if you cross that ocean, you'll get to the British Isles, you'll get to Africa, you'll get to America, uh, Asia. That's that's where the world begins. So that is also where dreams and longings and adventures begin. So so that's what I, I try to do. The line is a coastline, but it's also a lifeline, you could say. And indeed, and yeah, I live in in the UK, which also borders the North Sea, of course. And the last time we spoke, daughter, I would still have been a member of the um, a member of the EU, which I am am not now. And one cannot not think about borders as well when you talk about lines, a line in the world. And of course, this coast that you're talking about crosses multiple countries. In the book, you journey from you know, from the Netherlands through Germany and obviously Denmark as well. Yeah, the interesting thing is that when I got the assignment, I was told that I was going to write about the Danish part of the coastline. And that would, of course, stop at the German border. 
And I, uh, I said, well, I'm sorry, but nature doesn't care about national borders. It just doesn't care about it at all. So we have to go across borders to show that cultures and trade and uh, human beings constantly blur the lines of borders. And that is what the nature does in itself. So, I mean, border lines and, and stuff like, and walls and stuff like that are human constructs that uh, nature will care nothing of. So when you get that very big timeline that's called human culture and our history, we'll see that these border lines constantly drift and change and are not static at all. And that the cultures and uh, the nations around the borderline will constantly merge and trans. Uh, there will be a fusion between these entities. And, um, and that's a beautiful thing. And I'm sorry you're not in the EU anymore, but that's another story. <laughs> I'm sorry too. Um, yeah, I was going to say that, you know, this part of this coast, or almost all of this coast is, consists of, as well as the, the mainland coastland, a, a series of islands, again, some of which are in the Netherlands, some of which are German, some of which are Danish. But all of those islands have a much more of a relationship with the sea than they do with nation states almost so to what extent are those to what extent do those islands differ depending on which country in or do they just not i would say back in uh, the old days when there were no infrastructure in uh, in in denmark or also in northern germany and holland and it was very hard to transport yourself uh, across land these coast uh, coastline communities would be depending on themselves. They didn't uh, care about where the center of power was. The center of power was so far away and it, it didn't concern them. The people who lived in the center of power never visited them and vice versa. So they might be members of a country uh, living under a certain king, but who cared because he was far away. So they made their own little communities. Uh, they became, some of them are quite anarchistic and they were also very opportunistic because that's quite often what happens when you live close to water. You see good deals out there. You would take chances and you uh, cross that water to trade, to take slaves, to see what you can, to make yourself rich, basically. And um, you could say that is also the story about Great Britain is that, you know, that island identity means that you will walk course, go into the world and trade and merge and colonize and see what you, you can find out that that's part of living close to, to water. I find that interesting these days when the infrastructure is very strong uh, here and, and you can get from Copenhagen to this coastline in three hours, uh, which is nothing compared to American distances, for instance. It's just nothing. But there is still that gap between the center of power and the people over here they still consider themselves freed from that kind of power and uh, feel like they have the right to decide for themselves and um, and not be dictated anything and a bit anarchistic and uh, a lot of free will again obviously that coast covers a larger area than just Jutland which is the the place where you live now and where you were from originally as well. But tell us something about, you You just hinted at this, but tell us a bit more of a taste of what the Jutlanders are like in terms of how they carry themselves as a people and what they're like to outsiders. 
well, it's a peninsula and it's very big and it borders on Germany. The rest of Denmark is islands. So back in the old days, it was really hard to travel in Denmark because you have to cross water constantly. And the part of Western Jotland is rough country. It's farm country, of course. There's a lot of farmland here. But there are also very remote uh, landscapes. There is uh, the wilderness of uh, the West Coast. And you could say it, it depends on whether you're in Eastern Jotland or in Western Jotland, what the culture is, I would say. So in West Jotland, people are hardworking, good laborers. People say that they're stoic and strong and very mute. And the muteness I can really relate to when I grew up is that people don't talk much about how they're feeling and how it's not like urban people who just, you know, ramble on about everything they have on their mind. People over here are very cautious about what they say. So the communication will be hidden beneath the lines. So uh, you can't be judged for what you say. And um, that kind of stoic communication is uh, interesting. It's also interesting to have a lovely sense of humor, a sense of humor that is dry and ironic. Uh, that reminds me a lot of being in uh, the UK. Uh, the same kind of um, understated, uh, deadpan kind of humor. And also, I would say that the language over here if you go to the dialects, are quite similar to the English language, which is there are a lot of words here that are the same in English. And that is, uh, of course, because people from this coastline, the Angles and the Saxons and the Jews, colonized the British Isles and therefore left both DNA and language over there. When I'm in uh, Edinburgh, I constantly turn around in the beginning because it sounds as if there is somebody from home there. It's like the Scots sing their language in the exact same tune than the West Jotlanders do. I recently talked to um, a British writer who lives in Edinburgh, and uh, I uh, I told her that that there's a, a fisher town here, fisherman town called Tuburon, and it's said that when they the fishermen meet fishermen from Aberdeen, they'll be able to communicate without changing languages. And I always thought it was a myth. And she told me, she started mentioning some words from that area that nobody else had in, in Scotland. And they were from my area. They were from where I live on the other side of the coast. So that's really, I, I love stuff like that. I love when language uh, travel like that. But it's a big peninsula. And, um, and there's a lot of farmland and a lot of fishes. And on the east side of this uh, peninsula, the, the big cities are, are placed, the big universities and, and the more cozy kind of Biedermeyer landscape will be on the other, uh, on the eastern coast of uh, Jotland. Well, you mentioned Edinburgh and I learned from the book that, um, that one of the words that we use, one of the place name words comes from Danish is Berg, which means castle. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that means Edinburgh Castle is really Edding Castle Castle. Yeah, and uh, I also write somewhere in the book that when I was six, before I had English in school, a kid from um, around here came up to, and asked me whether I wanted to go with him uh, down to the water. And I did not understand what water was back then, because that's now not how Danish uh, people pronounce water. But um, that is, <laughs> that's when I found out, oh, they're speaking Scottish here, <laughs> you know, water and a barn and a hound and a fish and you know it's um it, there are quite a few few words 
Yeah, I'm afraid water is definitely how I would pronounce it as well. Water. Yeah, I love that. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I love that. It sounds it's great. Not, it's not brilliant English, but it's definitely how I would pronounce it. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to daughter Norse, and we're talking about her new book, A Line in the World, A Year on the North Sea Coast. And daughter, I said you you grew up in Jutland, and you talk in the book about the house that you grew up in and what happened to it. Well, I lived, uh, I grew up in the middle of Jutland in a big city that reminds me a little bit of Manchester. It's like a new city with a lot of spinning mills and textile industry. And I grew up in uh, the countryside around that city. It's called Herning. And um, moved away to big cities to study and live my life. And then suddenly in uh, my childhood home, I had to be uh, 
removed because of um, an expressway that was going to be built there. So um, I moved back to Jotland at the same time as my childhood home was demolished and it just disappeared. It didn't exist anymore. And I think it made me aware of how important it is to come from a place, to have your roots somewhere, to know where your journey started and have this very specific geographical spot that you can point to or that house, that parish, that city, that landscape. And you can say that's where I came from. But that was suddenly gone for me, not the parish and not the landscape, but the house itself was was gone. And at the same time, I had this international breakthrough with my writing that meant that I I believe that I needed that geographical connection to where I came from even more. So um, I'm suddenly I bought a little house close to where I grew up. Uh, so I had a new home and a new place uh, that I could uh, call home. And um, that meant a lot to me. There were a lot of my friends in Copenhagen and also people from my writing community who didn't understand it. Um, what are you doing? Why are you, <laughs> why are you uh, going to such a strange place so far away and so isolated in their eyes? But it was a strong longing for, for a place I could call home and for a landscape that I grew up in and therefore almost have a relationship to as if it was an old family member. And um, it made sense to me to do that. And um, yeah, it's a strange. You don't even think about how important the place you grew up is until there's a bulldozer <laughs> uh, running through it, right? You also talk about a cottage or a cabin that your family had or, or has by the coast, which sounds incredibly idyllic. And then you mentioned that it overlooks the chemical works. <laughs> yeah, it is idyllic. It's a little hunter's cabin that my father bought back in the uh, 1972. So I can't remember that. We haven't had that little cabin. It's uh, These days, it's uh, in a bird. They have made sort of a, what do you call it, a, natural, a natural reserve around it. It's like a bird, a uh, place for birds. So you can't build anything there. There are not any other cabins around. It's just this little cabin. And then on the other side of the water, like two kilometers away, uh, one of the very biggest chemistry plants in, in Denmark is placed. And it has polluted, well, it did in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, polluted a greater part of that landscape. So I write about that in the book as well, the strange uh, combination of absolute, fantastic, pristine nature and then poison sipping through the ground because people are idiots that they, but you know, who gets that idea to build a, a factory like that in one of the most pristine landscapes in Denmark. So I write about that and also about how there has been a fight against that kind of pollution of the landscape. And also when I was a child and I looked at that chemistry plant, I never thought of it as evil. It's an interesting thing with kids that we sort of accept everything that is around us as if it was normal. We normalize everything. I saw it as part of the landscape. I didn't know that it, whether it was good or bad. So that chemistry plant, even when I go there today, and I still do, and I still sit there in that cabin, and I write there, I use it as a sort of uh, office. 
and I go there and work now and then. And I look over that chemistry plant, and it's like a part of the landscape. If it was gone one day, I would basically feel that it was that there was a piece of the landscape missing, which is crazy because it's a really problematic factory. It's the same thing with the Atlantic Wall over here, because the German or the Nazis and the Second World War tried to build the Atlantic Walls, you know, and so all the bunkers are sort of spread down the coastline, and you will see them everywhere when you go to the beach here, and they're still there. And because I was born 25 years after the Second World War, I think that these bunkers are natural parts of the landscape. And most Danes think that a real beach should have these big concrete war fascist buildings sort of spread all over the beach. That's a real beach. A strange story in in Copenhagen, they built, they constructed a beach on the Öresund facing Sweden a couple of some decades ago. And to make it look as if it was a real beach, they made Nazi bunkers and placed on it themselves. So I was also quite interested in how human beings adopt the changes in landscape and how we normalize it. I mean, most of the nature that we see, and it's probably the same in the UK, is not untouched nature. It's either nature that has been cultivated that it has its forests that have gone it's the people have done everything to it but we still see it as true nature a true landscape and that is part of the way we drift into sometimes not as healthy perceptions of what nature is and um and what it needs which spills into the whole climate issue of what we're doing to to the world and staying with the the climate issue for a minute, obviously coastlines like this, as you said, are ephemeral. They're changing constantly anyway, but obviously the further the climate changes, the, the more that's going to change as well. And, and you talk in the book about, well, I mean, going back centuries, not even like a modern phenomenon, but there's been a number of catastrophic sea surges, like storm surges that have affected the coast. Well, it's part of the history and nature of this coast that there will be enormous storm surges uh, now and then, and they have come and gone throughout history. And thousands and thousands of people have drowned during the storms here. Uh, These days, all the way down to Holland, the people who live on this coastline, of course, now protect themselves. Um, Good engineers, they build dams, they build constructions and and stuff to to prevent the, the catastrophe. Uh, The catastrophes happen now and then, they're more rare, but the problem with climate change is, of course, that the storms will come more frequently and therefore have become very fragile. None more fragile than the Dutch, who basically live underwater, (laughs) you could say. And um, you're very aware of that when you live here, that the ocean is always the strongest. No matter what you do, it will win. It will eat land, it will eat houses, villages, it will move around with uh, sand, it will change everything. So when it comes to climate change, what we're worried about is, of course, if the constructions that we have built to protect ourselves will actually protect us in, in the long run. I think people who live here are super aware of the powers of nature and probably also in a way that people who live in in cities are, because I think there's 
I mean, of course, if you live close to a river like the Thames or the River Rhine or something, you will, you will be aware of that as a thing that can be threatening. You think of New Orleans and the Mississippi and all these things. But living in a place where you can hear the ocean every day and you can and it blows, the wind blows 300 days a year in your face. You're constantly aware of what a false nature is and that it is um, beautiful, but it's not cute. It's not evil, but it has a will of its own and it is stronger than you. So, of course, climate is something that we worry about out here. And just to finish us off, one of the chapters in the book, you take a journey with an artist and go and visit some, there's many churches along the coast, many, many churches in Denmark, but particularly along this coast. There's a number of churches that, unlike a lot of other churches in Europe, survived the Reformation and until relatively recently had um, frescoes, which, you know, most of the places in Europe would have been covered up. And you go on this project with this artist to look at those. But I don't want to talk about the churches because uh, this artist also did the illustrations of the book to tell yeah. us something about. And I'm talking about the UK. You mentioned that the Danish version of the book has photographs in it. And we're talking about the, uh, the British version here so tell us something about this version of the book when we had to publish it in uh, the uk and the us uh, they wanted to have drawings in uh, the book instead of photos primarily because photos are super expensive and the photos of the danish original were very big and there were many of them so they uh, said we want uh, drawings instead and uh, since uh, you're talking about this artist, Sina Parkins, in uh, in that chapter, uh, could you ask her? And I said, I'll ask her. And she said, I'd love to. So she, uh, after I wrote the book, or like two years after I was done, she embarked on the same journey with her pencil and her sketchbook. It was quite funny. And, uh, and came up with these wonderful, wonderful uh, drawings that grace every opening of, uh, of every chapter. And... Um, I like them. They're very poetic and uh, very sensual, and um, and they're very Sina uh, Parkins. She's a great Danish artist, and uh, I hope that um, both the American and the British reader will enjoy these these motifs. So I've been talking to Daughter Nors. We've been talking about her book, A Line in the World, A Year on the North Sea Coast, which is out in the UK from Pushkin Press. Daughter, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. You're welcome, and thank you for talking to me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented, and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.